Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Tamiko Brown-Nagin. She is Dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law and Professor of History at Harvard University. In 2019, she was appointed Chair of the Presidential Committee on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery. In April of this year, the committee issued a landmark report detailing Harvard University's direct financial and intellectual ties to slavery. Harvard has now committed $100 million to redress harms to descendant communities in the United States and the Caribbean. I'm joined by 20 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, I'm David McGregor, 1963, from Queens, New York. Um, I spent my career in architecture and urban design, and I'm honored to have you with us today. Bill Collins, live in Aiken, South Carolina, class of Harvard 63, grew up in the Boston area. Navy, visited Japan several times. You guys are talking about going to Japan to sing. I didn't go there to sing, but I went there at the uh, to the U.S. government and then Westinghouse Electric Company later on. Live in Aiken now, been here about 30 years. Came here to work, now retired from paying work. Peter Grilly. Yeah, um, I'm also class of 63 originally, but I graduated in 65. Um, I grew up in Japan. Um, and before we get into the meat of today's conversation, Um, which I'm very much looking forward to. I have just one quick question for the professor uh, about your first name. Do you have a Japanese father or grandfather or how how do you come by Tomiko? Right, that means rich woman in Japanese. And I come by it through uh, an an aunt who um, was herself multiracial uh, not Japanese, so far as I know, but came across the name and um, introduced my parents to it, and they liked it, and they gave it to me, and I've been explaining it ever since. <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll bet you have. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful first name. And I'm Ann Huberman. I'm a retired academic librarian, and I live in I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire, mostly, but right now I'm in Greenfield, just north of Peterborough at the summer place that I've been coming to for 81 years and uh, really enjoying and I'm gonna have a swim after we talk. (laughs) John. Hi, uh, John Woodford, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I, class of 63, I grew up in, across the state in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which is across from Chicago. Okay, David Allen. Uh, Thanks, Ken, also class of 63, so pleased to be invited here. I'm in Concord, Mass. I've had a sampler of a life, uh, 
New Ventures for a period, academic life, a program at the Kennedy School for a period, and then activism, the UN and stuff like that. Uh, I have to say, Barbara and I are so enormously appreciative of the Radcliffe Institute. Uh, you give us uh, an intellectual life that we simply wouldn't have otherwise. We weren't able to do Radcliffe day to day, so that $150 became a contribution to you. At our age, we just couldn't go sit in there, but we're looking forward to it next year. We're looking forward to here. Thanks for very much for being here. Very good. Thank you so much. I appreciate your words. Okay, Jerry. Uh, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. I'm an environmental lawyer. Did the Peace Corps, worked for the Department of Justice, worked for private industry, state government, uh, nonprofits. And I'm one of the 18 somewhat unrecognized uh, members of the class of uh, 63, along with Mr. Woodford and Kent and George, et cetera. I'm Doug Shapiro. I live in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, I'm a retired physician and academic behavioral ecologist. I spent 20 years or more uh, studying the behavior of coral reef fish on some of the world's most gorgeous coral reefs. Peter uh, Lesavoy. Hi. I'm an editor and writer, and uh, after Harvard, I worked with SNCC in Southwest Georgia for two and a half years. And at one point, I uh, produced a book, uh, The Great Pool Jump, which was a collection of my stories and some other stories of people uh, during that period in Southwest Georgia. My, <clears throat> my current project is revising it for a new edition of that book. Nick Bancroft, uh, usually living in Medfield, Mass, but coming to you uh, from an island off of uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, off of New Bedford, Mass. Uh, class of '63, Harvard Business School, Peace Corps for a couple of years, and uh, back to Boston. Basically, uh, trusts and investments. Alden, um, class of '63, born in Mass General, but now live uh, south of San Francisco. Um, and my wife uh, and I run a company to uh, consult with nonprofit organizations and fundraising. Okay, Marcy. I'm in New York City uh, organizing a vast archive for a wide variety of users to counter this information and the rewriting of history on, on public policy issues and public spending priorities. Okay, George. George. George Jones. I am finally back in Ann Arbor after a month or so on the road and am a biochemist slash molecular microbiologist. I still do scientist, science, although I'm not at the bench anymore. And according to one report, I graduated from Harvard in 1963. <laughs> okay. And uh, Jeff. Hi, I'm uh, Jeff Fox, born in Chicago, uh, now living in Spain. Uh, right after Harvard, I worked as a community organizer, originally in slums of Caracas, Venezuela, and then in Chicago, and found my way into graduate school as a sociologist, taught sociology for a number of years, and now I'm writing fiction. I'm Mason Morfitt. I live in Freeport, Maine. I was one of the uh, Kent's roommates, uh, and I was recently going through some files, and I found an old letter that I had written to the Harvard Crimson. There was apparently a, some kind of a dialogue going in in the letters to the editor about race relations at Harvard, uh, 
And uh, my contribution is still referred to the Negroes at Harvard. So although I was rooming with one of the last Negroes at Harvard and should have been more woke, uh, I was still using David terminology. <laughs> All right. Hampton Howell, I'm from New York and Boston. And I, after I graduated Harvard in 63, I, I hung around for about three more years doing anti-war organizing in Roxbury, Dorchester. And uh, since that time, I've been living in the South and, and had ongoing cultural uh, awakenings and challenges from it uh, about hypocritical Yankee slave traders. And, and how much the Northeast was really, was deeply involved with uh, uh, the uh, racial dis disaster in our country. All right, Mr. McCluskey, how are you? I'm fine, fine. Um, John in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, class of 66, um, finished school and went west to study creative writing in English. I uh, moved around the country in teaching jobs, uh, but have been at uh, Indiana University where I retired. Was here about uh, oh, 35 plus years, I guess it's been. Uh, I'm a gardener and I uh, just come out of my garden this morning and between the garden and the Zoom machine, uh, I forgot everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and Professor, welcome. Thank you. We are honored to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy to be here. I am the Dean of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm in my fifth year as Dean. I came to the Radcliffe Institute from Harvard Law School, where I am the Daniel Paul Professor of Constitutional Law. I also am appointed in the History Department on the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard. I have been on the faculty of Harvard for a decade. Before that, I was at the University of Virginia um, teaching law and history. And I am, my expertise lie in constitutional law, education law, uh, and policy and history, in particular, the history of the 20th century movements for social change, including the civil rights movement. And uh, I have published uh, any number of scholarly works, including um, two sole authored books. The most recent one published this January, A Life and Times of Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman federal judge. Some of you may recall that Associate Justice Jackson uh, held up Judge Motley as a role model when she was introduced to the country, which was, uh, I was delighted to hear. Uh, I have also published a social and legal history about the civil rights movement using Atlanta as a jumping off point, articles about various issues in constitutional law and education law. Uh, and more personally, I was born in the deep South in the state of South Carolina my ears uh, uh, pricked up when I heard mention of Aiken. Um, I was actually born in uh, small town Edgeville, South Carolina, which is quite well known, one might say infamous, uh, as the birthplace or the stomping ground of, said, of this country's um, archetypal racists, uh, uh, 
most recently, probably people remember Strom Thurmond. Uh, I'm what Edgefield produced uh, over time. And, and that is, of course, a delight after, as a result of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, uh, I, I am a beneficiary of uh, all of that uh, intellectual and social activism and am delighted to have been asked by President Bacow to, um, to chair the committee that produced this report. It is a, um, you know, it's historic, it's monumental. It took two and a half years to uh, write and uh, including um, to, to determine what the recommendations would be. The president very much wanted us to not only document the history, but to um, suggest how to move forward. It's important to have action following this uh, report. And uh, I, I'm proud of what we were able to do together. And it was uh, challenging, um, monumental. It required on my part as chair, um, interfacing with uh, senior leadership across the university in addition to my committee. And I think that although um, I'm sure, and I, I know that we've had some conversation about some uh, wanting greater emphasis on some aspects of the history, I think that uh, I'm proud of, of Harvard for, for uh, backing this, this uh, report and, uh, and looking forward to seeing how the recommendations unfold over time. I'd like to hear more about what the committee has decided is their, their agenda is, you know, what's their, what are they gonna do next? Well, the report included a list of recommendations that are meant to be lasting, um, to address the harm, some of the harms that resulted from the institution of slavery and those recommendations, there's seven of them. One um, was the concept of establishing a Harvard Legacy of Slavery uh, Fund, which the president and the Harvard Corporation backed. It's in the amount of $100 million, the largest um, such fund established by any of the universities that uh, have publicly divulged their entanglements with slavery. And the money is to be used to, um, uh, to promote educational opportunity and access. That's where we lead. And we lead there, of course, because educational access and opportunity is a known driver of social mobility. And uh, that is what uh, overall, we believe is important to try to do in wake of the ways in which this country's history of racial discrimination and slavery uh, still impact the lives of descendant communities. In fact, the lives of, of uh, really everyone in the country. Um, we also promoted the idea of seeking through genealogical research to find um, descendants of Harvard-connected enslaved people. The report includes a list of some 70 
human beings who were enslaved by Harvard um, presidents or professors, staff, uh, members of the governing board and so forth. And um, there is a project underway uh, to seek to look through various records, colonial records, estate uh, records, and, and try to see if we can uh, actually find some of those individuals. Um, as you may know, Georgetown University engaged in such an effort um, and was able to find some of those descendants. I think it's so important for people to know their history. Um, and it was very happy that the committee came together to promote that particular recommendation. We also recommend that the university establish uh, a, a memorial to enslaved people who worked on campus. Um, I don't need to tell you all that uh, uh, thousands of people um, visit Harvard's campus every year and they congregate around the John Harvard uh, statue and others on campus. Well, uh, we, we would like, and we think it's important for those who visit our campus to have a fuller sense of our history, to engage with uh, uh, that history. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, recommendation um, find uh, support and be realized on the campus. And there are many more endeavors. Perhaps the last one I'll mention is an effort to partner with uh, HBCUs, research-focused HBCUs, um, to uh, through our libraries and also to bring to campus students and professors who are interested in visiting with us, um, exchanging with us, and uh, importantly, we think that uh, Harvard professors and students have much to learn from professors and students at HBCU. So it's meant to be a two-way relationship. And I'll pause there and I, I see another hand. Uh, George. For those of you who may be interested, you may know this already, but there's an article in the most recent Harvard Magazine about the Legacy, Legacy of Slavery Initiative. And one of the, the recommendations is to ensure institutional accountability. I'd like to hear from you how exactly that's going to play out in practice as it specifically affects faculty, students, and staff. She's well, a historian, not a fortune teller. Well, it's a recommendation in the report. That means there must be some meat associated with it. It is a recommendation and I should let you know that the committee that wrote the report and came up with the recommendations is not the same as the implementation committee, which has been formed and which is being chaired by Martha Menno of Harvard Law School, former Dean and human rights scholar. Um, that committee will um, establish guidelines and processes, procedures for um, carrying the recommendations forward, including the accountability measure. Um, one form of accountability uh, or, or modality for achieving accountability is the Legacy of Slavery Fund. Uh, so recommendations without a means, resources to 
push them forward would, would be um, uh, pretty meaningless. And so we already are moving that forward. Um, and we have, we will have faculty uh, and staff members who will be responsible and accountable for moving the recommendations forward, for ensuring that each of the schools actually is taking action to promote um, the, the principles of the recommendations. And so the point is that this work in order to be meaningful over time needs to be institutionalized. Um, the deans need to be uh, held accountable. The faculty need to be held accountable, um, staff and so forth. And uh, finally, I'll say, I have every um, expectation that there will in fact be movement. I've been very pleased with the reactions of my decanal colleagues and of faculty and staff and students. Um, they are, uh, you know, obviously this is a painful history, but they're pleased to see that Harvard has taken this step. Um, and it, it's, it's the people um, at the university and the alumni community asking questions about it and ensuring that they're, you know, the, the leadership is taking it seriously um, will we'll determine the extent to which, and I think it'll be a great extent, uh, that the university moves forward to implement the recommendations. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, I was wondering in, in this investigation that you did, there surely must have been some surprises, some unexpected things that you discovered. Uh, and if so, what were they? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, the, the surprise, I would say the main surprise is just how much history there was, how extensive those ties were. I wouldn't have expected there to be more than 70 human beings um, uh, uh, enslaved by Harvard people, Harvard presidents and faculty and so forth. Um, that's, that's just much more extensive than I would have thought. I also, um, as we started to explore the financial ties, um, I hadn't expected those ties to be so ex extensive. And although I expected there to be some, just the, the depth and breadth of, of the ties is important. And frankly, um, in some ways, more important than what many people already knew uh, about. And that was the intellectual production that um, some Harvard-connected faculty and even presidents were responsible for um, that promoted racism. Uh, so, so again, it's just all of it. Um, the, the idea of enslaved people working uh, on campus and feeding the students, um, our students, is uh, it was just um, quite something. On the other hand, uh, I also will say I was pleased to be able to document the great extent to which Harvard affiliates were involved in abolitionism, uh, in uh, laying the groundwork for 20th century changes um, in the civil rights movement, that's important too. And many of those individuals uh, were, were white, uh, they were black. And I, 
uh, as a civil rights historian, um, I was determined that the reports not stop with the enactment of the 13th Amendment, um, but, but come forward in time and capture um, that dialectic of, of some people connected to Harvard um, continuing to support segregation and discrimination, but at the same time, making sure that we lift up that history of engagement and activism um, that over time resulted in uh, change at, at Harvard and in the nation in general. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to hear more about the, that intellectual production you were talking about that uh, favored slavery <laughs> as well as the, as the opposite stuff. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the reality that um, several Harvard presidents, in addition to um, being slave owners, were not interested in the in supporting. It took a long time for us to, uh, as a university, um, to support the, the union perspective in the war, um, uh, for instance. Um, and there were Harvard-connected people who promoted eugenics um, and race science, so who supported the notion that um, uh, whites and African-Americans are from fundamentally different um, uh, origins. And of course, all of this racism is is wrapped up in anti-Semitism as well. They, they are companions, were companions um, in, in the history of the university. Uh, and so there's there's quite a lot there uh, in terms of the, the intellectual legacy supportive of slavery and discrimination. On the other hand, we also graduated W.B. Du Bois, who is a towering intellectual figure who did so much um, to uh, right uh, scholarship that helped to disestablish um, Jim Crow and vestiges of, of, of slavery and racism. So there again, you have both elements um, uh, of our racial struggle represented in the history of Harvard. Thank you. Uh, David Allen. I'm more than curious what has been the response at present day Harvard after all this has emerged. Uh, and now I can ask, if we bring that dialectic forward to today, mm -hmm. uh, I have no idea, but the guess is that uh, there, of course, will be a happily very strong voice, quote, on the left for, uh, let's, for goodness sake, get our civil rights correct. Let's uh, move beyond the racism that's characterized our society from the beginning. And I suspecting there are voices on the other side who might give some lip service to the, uh, to the report, but uh, not entirely be unstuck from that other side of the dialectic from the past. And of course, I'm only asking about your impressions here, that's all. But still, since you've been really uh, at the center of this maelstrom. I'm curious uh, what's happened uh, in Cambridge at Harvard uh, in response to this, especially if it's across that spectrum. Thanks. Sure, happy to speak to that to the extent that I can. 
Um, after the report was released, uh, the president Bacow and and to some extent, uh, I received a lot of email reaction, um, overwhelmingly positive, but some of it not, with um, some arguing that we just need to get on with it, uh, not focus on this negative history. Uh, some taking issue with the legacy of slavery fund, uh, some that, that Harvard would um, uh, feel a responsibility to establish such a fund, others saying um, that given the harms of slavery, that it, it, was, it was not enough. Uh, some complaining or comparing the history of slavery to other forms of, of um, you know, ethnocentrism, nativism. Um, and so there, there has been a spectrum of responses, but I, I think that overwhelmingly it's been positive um, from the individual's whom I know about, uh, the alumni community, faculty, students. And of course, there are those on our campus who are quite bothered by this history, disturbed by it. Um, and that's not surprising. However, I do think it's important to have written the history. The, the truth can be painful, uh, hurtful. Um, uh, but we're a research university. We, we have to engage in truth-telling about every subject, including our own history. And I say to those individuals who are disturbed by the history, well, consider it a call to action um, for taking you know, actions in one's daily life um, to uh, work against this history, to um, form relationships and friendships across lines of race uh, to push back against uh, the, the vestiges of, of discrimination. And it seems to me that um, that, that is the, the best outcome here. Uh, we, can't, we can't erase the past. Um, it, it's also true that Harvard of today is significantly different from uh, the Harvard even of the, the, you know, the 1960s and the 1970s. We're in a very different place as an institution. Um, certainly, I would not have taken on this task if I didn't believe that. Um, and I think that, uh, for, for instance, to, to be concrete about it, Harvard over the past 40 years has been a leader of efforts to um, to diversify uh, student the student population. We are um, ha have been sued, um, as you know, as a result of our efforts. Um, and so I think that um, we we have to continue to struggle to ensure that our our futures and our present are, are better than our past. And I think they are and will be. Alden. Uh, just a quick point here, uh, three, three quick points. First, 
Um, I love the use of the word native, and I and I, I always love the word native when applied to America because it means uh, the the second group of people who got here are the uh, are the folks that we ought to support, not not the, certainly not the first. Uh, so I love the word native. Uh, second, I think there was some concern among the group here about some errors. In in fact, most of us, I presume everybody here has read uh, Kent's book, uh, which indicated that that there was a something of a jump of the number of blacks in the college in, in uh, the fall of 59. Uh, and the, the report sort of implied that it didn't come until a couple of years later. So anyway, um, and there were some emails jumped around among this group about that issue. Um, the, the third you've to some extent answered uh, or res responded to, and that is uh, there's been some comment certainly among this group that, that you know, a million dollars is not enough. Uh, a hundred million dollars. Hundred million is not enough. Did, did you talk? Uh, uh, you talked a little bit about about you that. Any other comments on it? Sure. I will first respond to the um, notion of errors. So the difficult thing about um, the racial history as it relates to. Um, pre-1964 racial history is there was no um, impetus to actually co to collect the data that would give us the um, to, to give us the the facts about uh, the percentage or number of African-Americans who were on campus. It just doesn't exist. There have been some scholars who have looked, who have used census records and other types of records to, um, to seek to establish a record. Um, and that is what we mostly relied on. Um, I was aware of uh, Kent's very fine work. Um, it's it's uh, characterization of, of the numbers was not originally a part of um, the report after the email correspondence, um, we did make some changes. Um, I, I, I take issue with the notion of errors. Uh, I think there are different interpretations of what the numbers might be, but none of them are certain uh, is what I want to say. But I, I, I was happy to include that, that number um, in, in the report ultimately. Uh, but of course, the point of the report is to tell a story about change over time. And frankly, um, whatever the number is, it was far too low, uh, is, is what I would say. And then finally, on, on the figure, um, I take the point that some might think the $100 million is not enough. Um, and yet, what number would be enough? Uh, I, I am pleased that we were able to reach that figure. Um, no one should assume that it was, it was obvious to, to anyone that uh, the university should establish a fund of that size. Um, so those are my thoughts about that. Uh, Hamp. Yeah, uh, as somebody who went through social relations at uh, Harvard, I pay, and as a practicing therapist today, I pay a lot of attention to the kind of dialectic between the individual 
and the uh, sociological issues that uh, go on. And I'm just, and I, I noticed with my own behavior that I went off on somebody earlier talking about white guilt. I, I forget who it was. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm glad that you're trying to look at this, at this overall picture very much. And um, I, I, I was struck, uh, I, I was having a dialogue with a uh, uh, friend who just asked me to uh, react to a, a book that she had dedicated to me uh, and uh, which shocked me. And uh, uh, she, she was referring to herself as a uh, descendant of slaves in it and, and how much that had influenced her. And for myself, uh, when I was trying to respond to that, what I could come up with was slaveholder, even though I have no reason to believe that there were slaveholders in my family or that there were not. I, I, I haven't been able to find out that information despite asking about it several times. And what, uh, what I uh, like about the approach that you're taking, Dr. Brown-Nagan, is, is about the uh, total picture uh, making it balanced. Uh, and, you know, we can get into, uh, there's a lot of antagonism about CRT, critical race theory in the uh, South and, and outrage about it being taught anywhere, any place. And, and uh, I think the same thing can uh, uh, happen in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, the work that uh, you're doing. And I am glad to I, I, I just really like the balanced approach. And I had lost track of abolitionists in, 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 in terms of uh, alternatives to white guilt, period. Hmm. When you say you lost track, what do you mean by that? The only identity I could, I, I could come up with quickly was, was a slaveholder. And that was a, that was a distortion. Well, it was important to me to write a report, as I, as I said, that did include the dialectic. Um, you know, our history is complex. The country's history is complex. Um, and uh, just as, as a scholar, I seek to, to find a balance. That, that's the way yeah. life is. Yeah. Um, yes. and, uh, so, so thank you for your comments. Mm -hmm. uh, Spencer. Uh, yes, uh, I'd like to quickly thank you for a fantastic job that you that you did over that the whole group did over the uh, last two years. Your group, um, uh, the Le legacy uh, group, and especially this uh, all the new information that you gave about the slave history, uh, which was unknown and has it already had a tremendous impact. You know, as you know, beyond the uh, 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 university as well. And I think that's good. Uh, I would like to uh, have just two quick questions. One is about uh, alumni and their, because uh, uh, we're, of course, uh, you noticed by the pictures, we're alumni and uh, we are uh, uh, interested, uh, I think, in uh, uh, what role uh, alumni uh, uh, can, are, should look to in terms of their wisdom uh, contributing to this new thing, uh, new initiative. 
And the last thing I'd like to say is that uh, uh, relates to the positive versus the negative uh, that uh, in the future, uh, uh, is there a role for emphasizing the positive things that, uh, that, were, that Blacks have done at Harvard uh, uh, that, uh, that point away to the future uh, where uh, uh, I know that uh, they had a uh, I too am Harvard movement and students there uh, uh, two years ago. Uh, but that's because they don't know about the history of the fighting people at Harvard and the fighting people of America who black people. And I think we, that given that balance, it, it can both emphasize the horror of the slavery, but also give a role model for students at Harvard and around the country that we have been more than victims. And that during the slavery period and beyond, as uh, was mentioned here, you know, the abolitionists, and then of course the Du Bois people, there were many more people than Du Bois. And I, you know, we're tired of getting just Du Bois as being the, you know, the, the guy who did stuff at Harvard. Uh, so going all the way back to uh, the Grimkeys and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Warmless Gibbs, you know, who was a soldier there in World War I and he went on and came back to Harvard. And then he became the head of North Carolina AT&T and was a mentor of the students, you know, uh, who did the, uh, the first sit-ins. I mean, there's a marvelous positive history at Harvard that I'm very interested in uh, doing since we were very much a part of that history uh, from 1869 on. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, uh, uh, that that kind of getting a reaction to you from those two things, alumni, and then the positive thing, the abolitionists, the Robert Gould Shaw's 54th Massachusetts and all like that. Sure, thank you, Spencer. And we, we have spoken a bit on these matters before. Um, just a, a few reactions, one, we are through the Radcliffe Institute organizing an alumni panel um, about blacks at Harvard and that will be in the fall. Um, and the point of that is to allow people to share their stories. Um, and uh, your um, people will be uh, able to talk about um, some of the figures that, that you mentioned, or at least those who are um, connected to them in the 20th century. Um, and we also, I have a staff member who is updating the website to discuss some of the other figures um, in Harvard's history who would represent what you, um, you're calling the positive uh, side. And third, I, I do think that, as I said, I went quite a long way to incorporate um, the, the history of uh, Black agency uh, into this report. Didn't have to do it, wasn't asked to do it. Um, I, I did it because I thought it was important and it's a part of my own scholarly um, uh, trajectory and commitments to do that. I would urge you to keep in mind that there is a vast audience for this report. Um, and there, although 
you may know the history of W.B. Du Bois chapter and verse. I assure you there are many who do not. Um, and it, it's important to, uh, for, for those individuals to emphasize Du Bois and Charles Hamilton Houston and, and many others. And I will conclude again by in inviting you or, or saying that you know, this, this report was not meant to be the, the last word. Um, uh, and if people wanna write about um, important figures or uh, social activism at Harvard, I, I say, please do. Um, it's something I've, I've thought about my, myself, you know, even the something like the protests of, of 1969 have been written in a way um, to, to minimize um, uh, women and people of color. There, there's so much to be done. And I, I invite you to be a part of writing that scholarship and, and others if, if it's something that's important to you. Mm -hmm. Doug. Um, yes, um, I was wondering if you would be willing to um, sort of uh, broaden the scope of, uh, uh, of the focus of this discussion and talk about uh, what you think about the possibility of that this country as a whole might be able or willing or interested in coming up with some kind of reparations uh, for the monstrosity of all the injustices that have been imposed upon our Black and Native American populations over the centuries. And secondly, uh, whether you think the Harvard program uh, is likely to have some sort of a broader impact uh, in general on the discussion uh, beyond the, uh, the Harvard community, uh, and finally, just, you know, what do you think that Black Americans' responses will be uh, if uh, there is some attempt to simply uh, take all of this history about racial injustice, try to summarize it in terms of some sort of a dollar amount uh, that can compensate for, for all of this history. Just, just broaden your discussion a bit, please. Sure, thank you for those questions. In terms of the impact beyond Harvard, it matters what happens at Harvard. When Harvard speaks, people listen. Um, and uh, you know, the president and I co-wrote an opinion piece that was published in the Washington Post that was endorsed by the entire editorial board of the Washington Post, calling other institutions to action. It's not as if Harvard is alone in this history. Uh, the Congress itself, the Supreme Court, uh, presidents, the, you know, the, the history of, of slavery touches all of our uh, institutions in this country. And I have had feedback from uh, individuals and the president has at other institutions um, who praise the, the, the scholarship in the report. And I have every sense that um, there will be a, a broader impact and already has been. Um, on the reparations question, I have at least three reactions. Um, one, when you asked, is the country ready? Well, it depends on which elements of the country you're talking about. 
there, there have been cities and in off the top of my head, Illinois and California that have moved forward with uh, reparations actually enacted uh, forms of reparations. Um, and I expect that those efforts will continue at a state and local level, uh, including perhaps in Boston, where there's an effort to um, study or, or discuss the issue of reparations for slavery. Um, so there's the state and local effort. Um, at the national effort, there has been some movement in, in Congress. Uh, not sure where that will go. Um, frankly, it would be hard for me to see, given the variety of issues that are facing the country, including the, the continuance of our democracy, uh, to see that particular issue um, be prioritized, but I, I could be wrong about that. Um, so that's the reaction to the national conversation. And finally, I, as a scholar and as a person who's been working on issues of racial discrimination, remedies for it for many years now, I do wonder um, if reparations, if by that is meant some kind of dollar figure um, is, uh, is an approach that would generate widespread support even among African-Americans. I don't know that it would. Uh, and one of the difficulties is that reparations can mean many different things. Um, and who decides what's the right approach? I, I just don't know. Um, for my part, uh, I, I am deeply committed to um, educational access and, and opportunity. Um, it can be life-changing. It is a harder proposition than uh, I think in many ways than um, monetary damages, to use the legal term, for um, racial harms. And yet it, it's, it can be life-changing. And I, I can tell you this based on my knowledge of the vast literature, but also my own life. Um, and uh, so, so that's, that's how I see that issue. Thanks for the question. All right, uh, finally, maybe uh, Peter Grilly, you had your hand up? My question was gonna be, has been already pretty much addressed by earlier questioners, um, but it was how much in your personal um, thinking and in the thinking of your colleagues, were you preparing a report not so much for Harvard. I mean, Harvard, of course, was the central focus, but given Harvard's role in the society, weren't you also really writing a report for the country, for the nation? And um, uh, uh, we wonder how, uh, what the implications are gonna be on a national level in, in the federal government and in other states and other universities, way beyond Harvard. Well, thank you for those comments. And the answer is absolutely yes. The audience to which uh, to whom we were speaking 
is, is vast, it's national, could be global. Um, uh, and as I've said, we've seen feedback um, from some of the constituencies who were happy to have the report out in the world. And of course, it was written and has been released in the context of efforts in last count some 36 states um, to ban the teaching of such history. And so I think it's important that Harvard has uh, uh, put its imprimatur uh, um, um, in support of, of this history. It's, it's, it's hugely important. Um, and I should say that the report is going to be published as a book by Harvard University Press released this fall, and that will, I hope, give it even more uh, purchase and a, a bigger audience. And uh, it, it's so vital to have Americans appreciate the ways in which um, what historians often call the original sin um, extended throughout our, our nation. It was practiced in the Northeast, uh, despite uh, the the emphasis on the history of abolitionism here, which is a wonderful history and we should own it and claim it. And our the region's role as the, the birthplace of uh, America, we should claim that too, but it's a complicated history. Um, and I, I'm pleased and proud that, that we produced this report and I look forward to seeing all the ways in which it helps to spur um, conversation and change and just a recognition of where we are, where we've been as a country and where we should go. All Thank right, you. well, final, uh, I guess, qu qu final questions to uh, John, you had one question. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just concerned. I don't know whether uh, the professor meant it the way I might have taken it, but it seemed to me that when it comes to the experiences of our class and classmates, when we, uh, knew who we were and could count each other very easily. I don't understand how the historiography or the methodology of figuring out how many of us were there at that time could be thought of as somehow um, in, invalid or imprecise or unreliable in determining even our cohort. It seems to me that we were there on the campus we met together, we easily count each other, how many of us there were. We know how many there were. So I would think that Harvard would be interested in recognizing and uh, valorizing our own experiences and our own accounts of who we were and how many of us there were. It seems strange to me that something as simple as that could be thrown in any kind of doubt or well, John, I'm sorry that you took my comments uh, in that spirit. It was not meant in any way um, to suggest that your stories or your histories or your numbers are invalid. I don't think that. Uh, and what I said is that, in fact, there were changes made to the report in reaction to uh, Kent's emails and emails from others. I also said that there's a difference between, um, uh, well, there, there are a number of ways to talk about it. There's a difference between, say, 
a historian using census data and a historian relying on oral history. There just is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know how else to say it um, other than that. And um, the, the, the oral history approach has been contested for some time. Um, uh, I actually have relied on oral history in in much of my scholarship, but I'm it's 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 um, it's well thought of, um, and so nothing about the chosen originally chosen path is meant to say that um, there's anything invalid um, uh, about the history that uh, Mr. Garrett wrote in. And his book, it's a fine book. I read the book. I like the book. Um, it's just that for purposes of preparing an institutional uh, history of Harvard, the initial idea, and this is this is a challenging uh, project. It, it, it wasn't even clear to me. Um, well, we went with what we thought would be um, the, the best approach given the many audiences that we were uh, responding to. And it wasn't just the class of 1963. There, there's a much bigger um, uh, number of constituencies, constituencies here. Uh, and so that, that's how I'll respond. And again, um, I did make changes. I hope that um, you can appreciate that this is a complicated issue, but in no way, um, uh, and I, I hope that you can appreciate given all that I've said and, and who I am, I wouldn't be in a position of trying to invalidate uh, or say that the history is invalid. That's, that's not what I'm about. We wanna thank you for coming on and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and I've enjoyed the conversation. I'd like to say, to say one thing, and that is thank you very much for all the work you've done, and you've given us another reason to be proud of the Harvard connection. Yes. Uh, I, have I have at times been embarrassed by the Harvard connection uh, for reasons I think everybody will understand. They think that you're a snob or you're, you know, whether you're a rich guy or something, but this is, is really something that uh, is very good to hear and makes me very happy to be connected. Thank you. Oh, well, that is so meaningful. I really appreciate that. Yes, we are Harvard. Uh, we are representing Harvard these days. Okay. Take care. Okay, thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Harvard professor Tamiko Brown-Nagin. She was chair of the Presidential Committee on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery and as Dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law and Professor of History at Harvard University. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.